Welcome to Tales from the Bridge. In this episode, Kevin and Marty sit down with Robert J. Sawyer. Big ideas, big concept, really good one. We hope you enjoy it. We're going to have an episode a week for the next little while. Chris Gebhardt from NASA Spaceflight is joining us next week, so be sure to join us. We're going to talk about rockets and all kinds of interesting stuff. All right, Rob's waiting for us. Let's make our way over to the bridge. Robert J. Sawyer is a homegrown sci-fi hero here in Canada. He is the only Canadian sci-fi author, and only one of seven authors in the world to have won the Nebula, Hugo, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for his science fiction work. He's a prolific author with dozens of published works, including the 1995 Nebula Award-winning novel The Terminal Experiment, the 2003 Hugo Award-winning novel Hominids, and the 2006 John W. Campbell Memorial Award Mindscan. Robert is also an Order of Canada recipient, which is how our country honors people who make extraordinary contributions to the nation. It's a pretty big deal. And so we're super happy to have you with us here, Robert. Welcome. Thank you, Kevin and Marty. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell us what's been keeping you busy these days, Robert. What you been working on? Well, you know, I haven't had a new novel out for two years now. My last novel was The Oppenheimer Alternative. And... Um, uh, in the interim, I have uh, written another novel, which will be out in about eight months, um, but it's going to initially appear as an audio book, as an audio original. Uh, Audible Canada uh, approached me and offered me a, a quite generous amount of money if I would let them have my next book as an Audible original first cool. before it appears in print. And, uh, you know, my agent and they went back and forth and we ultimately agreed that they could have a six month exclusive window. Uh, and I created the novel. It's called The Downloaded with the fact that Audible was going to do it as the first uh, exposure of it in mind, uh, which meant that they wanted to have 10 approximately half hour installments that they could uh, that they could treat it as almost like a, a dramatic podcast. So that meant 10 uh, chapters. And if you do the, the math of how many words it takes for half an hour, 10 5,000 word chapters. So it's a short novel, 50,000 words compared to over 100 for most of my novels, 100,000 words for most of my novels, um, multiple first-person narrators, which is a very hard thing for any writer to pull off. It gets confusing. Normally, if you have a first-person book, it's one person throughout the book. This is my story, blah, 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 blah. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, my favorite novel, is a first-person narration, one person only. Uh, the uh, Moby Dick, the great American novel, is Ishmael's first-person narration. That's all you get. I wanted to be challenged in doing this and Audible, of course, wanted something that would be sweet to listen to. And so we hit on the idea of doing something that was Rashomon-like, the famous uh, Kurosawa film, which has a bunch of people recounting the same events, uh, but from different perspectives and sometimes contradicting each other. And uh, that's what I've done. We have nine different first-person narrators over the course of the 10 episodes. Not that one episode per narrator, but they're interspersed. They'll go back and forth to get three or four scenes in each episode. And Audible hired Gregory J. Sinclair, who used to be the head of radio drama at the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, to produce this. So we're just waiting for uh, Audible to sign the contracts with what we're told is going to be some big name talent, recognizable names to perform the parts that I've written. And the whole thing should be out in audio by November 1st, and then six months later out as a uh, a book, the downloaded. And that's uh, what's been keeping me busy to the present day. Wow, that's amazing. So in, in that production, as the author, how involved are you? Like, are you helping to choose talent or are you providing advice? Or what, what's So certainly I'm providing advice. In fact, one of the things I had to do, which I've never had to do for a novel before, is prepare a pronunciation guide 
that mm. goes at the front of the manuscript, not just for the made-up names that I have in the novel, but of course that's useful, but also just for scientific terms that might not be familiar to a particular actor or actress that they might bring involved. Um, I have uh, been consulting with Greg on casting. We went back and forth. He would suggest the name. I would suggest the name. And we've got great names. I wish I could mention them. Mm -hmm. But the contracts haven't been signed yet because Audible hasn't signed off on the on the money for that yet. We expect it, you know, uh, as you and I happen to be recording this, the three of us, uh, it's the first day after the Labor Day holiday weekend, which means that, you know, people are coming back to work after being off for a while. We're hoping that this week all of that will get sorted out and we'll get into studio very soon. I intend to be in studio some of the time. It'll take Greg, you know, multiple days and multiple sessions to pull this together. And I got, I got a life to live, but I want to be there for a bit of it uh, to be on hand. Um, you know, when ABC made a TV series based on my novel Flash Forward, uh, the series was also called Flash Forward. I went down for a bunch of the filming. It was filmed in Los Angeles and um, including the scenes that were putatively set in Toronto, I've lad, were filmed <laughs> in L.A. I think we had a Hollywood first where L.A. masqueraded as Toronto instead of the never heard of that. Around. That's funny. Um, but I loved being on set, you know, seeing the people performing things that I've written or based on something that I've written. Uh, it's a huge kick. It's a huge kick, of course. And that's a smart idea about the pronunciation guide. I've, uh, in particular, in science fiction, I listen to audiobooks. That's how I ingest most of my sci-fi. And uh, yes, yeah, and we're and I, Canadians here, Kevin. And uh, my novel, uh, penultimate novel, just before the Oppenheimer alternative, was Quantum Night. And part of Quantum Quantum Night takes place in Regina, Saskatchewan. But the American editor, uh, sorry, excuse me, the American narrator said Regina. Saskatchewan yeah. uh, throughout, which is, of course, the, the standard pronunciation of that word is Regina. Uh, but Regina is the city, and it's wrong every single time in the audiobook. <laughs> so uh, I'm particularly sensitive to the fact that what is a common word to me as right. A, a Canadian, or B, a science fiction writer, might not be a common word to some of the talent that we'll be bringing aboard, uh, some of which will certainly be American. Do you have to coach them on how to pronounce about properly? About. That's yeah. right. <laughs> well, not all my characters in down in the downloaded are Canadian. In fact, one is Canadian. She's Jamaican Canadian, the lead character. Uh, there's also uh, uh, another main character who also is Canadian. Sorry, the lead character is Jamaican American. Uh, the secondary character is Canadian of Ukrainian descent. And then we've got a Russian character. We've got, I started writing this before the Ukraine and Russia were at war. Okay. Uh, a Russian character. We've got a, a Chinese character and uh, a, an Armenian American character. We've got quite a mix. Mm -hmm. And uh, it'll be lovely to see here all the accents being done appropriately. That's great. Absolutely. Well, uh, Kevin and I were just talking before this how that one of the things we love about your work as Canadian science fiction fans is how much Canadiana we get, like the places and the street names, and uh, and it's just so refreshing, right? You don't see that a lot in a, in a lot of other fiction, and uh, you know, I think you you had um, a book based at the oh well, uh, Calculating God was at the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, right there That's in right. Toronto. It's That's at the so ROM and nice. Factoring Humanities at the University of Toronto. Uh, yeah. Quantum Night is, besides being in Regina, is <laughs> also very much in Winnipeg and in Saskatoon. Right. Uh, I love doing that. I, I love this country. And, you know, when I started now, this is 32 years I've been a novelist now. And when I started, the advice that was given to me by everybody in Canada, established novelists, and readers, don't mention Canada. Don't set anything in Canada. Americans won't get it. Americans won't understand. 32 years on now, uh, downloaded is my 25th book, um, 25 novels, 32 years, never once has an American objected to the Canadian content in my books. Not an American uh, editor at any of the publishing companies I've dealt with, uh, an American agent, an American publisher, publicist, bookseller, or reader. 
has ever objected. In fact, most of them have found it absolutely fascinating. We have to remember, we live in a world where Stig Larsson's uh, The Girl with the Dragging Tattoo and its sequels opened up a whole world of Scandinavian mystery fiction to mm -hmm. people who had never encountered that before. Uh, you know, the novel Gorky Park, set in Russia and filmed, obviously, uh, as well. Uh, you know, people had never thought they would be interested in fiction set in Russia. Fictions, and yet, uh, Shogun, set in Japan, of course, with James Clavell. All of these things have proven time and again that Americans, who are the largest market for English language science fiction, obviously, aren't anywhere near as, quote-unquote, provincial as we Canadians or others make them out to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, uh, Canadian readers delight in the Canadian content of my books, for sure. But Americans are either charmed by it or otherly indifferent to it, but it certainly doesn't anger them. And how stereotypical that the Canadians are the only ones to apologize for their own Canadian Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I'm an empiricist at heart. That's a um, refrain through a lot of my novels. I want to see the data. I want to find out for myself. And when all these people told me that, way back in 1990, I had the distinction of being one of the first writers to be doing all their work on word processors. And I got what is now Penguin Random House, to typeset for the very first time in 1992, a book from the author's computer file. Hmm. They had up to that point asked for a printed manuscript, hmm. which they would pay somebody to keyboard for them into their typesetting equipment. And I said, this is ridiculous. And I told my editor, uh, Peter Heck was his name, that it was ridiculous. And he came around to agree with me and we fought through the production people and they finally agreed to it. Of course, now everybody is expected to provide a word processing file in Microsoft uh, DocX format mostly these days. But uh, I was a pioneer of that transition and uh, it's, it's you know, made life much, much easier, obviously. And I had a lot of typos. Yeah. People re-keyboarding my stuff had made an enormous number. Uh, when they've had to do that. What well, a great I, way to introduce human error. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So Every time the word is retyped is another chance for it to be gotten wrong. Well, I'm a big fan of much of your pioneering work, and I really look forward to being uploaded into a computer and having my consciousness reproduced uh, and, and sent across space. You know, that's, that's an great interesting stuff. Thing, great stuff, Marty, because <laughs> I write about that all the time. It, the downloaded is about the flip side, by the way. Everybody has been uploaded and then a disaster occurs that was never anticipated. And so people have to go back to their physical existence that they never anticipated going back to. Cool. And MindScan, of course, about uploaded consciousness. It's there as a background thing uh, for some of the aliens in Calculating God. Uh, it's in a whole bunch of my work. My Hugo Award-nominated short story, Shed Skin, is about it. Um, I don't think I want it for myself. I got to mm -hmm. say... I'm very intrigued by the philosophical questions. Um, and I fully accept, because I'm completely a materialist, I don't believe there's anything, uh, uh, well, non-physical about human consciousness. It may be quantum mechanical. I often argue that based on Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff's work. But it is certainly of the material universe. And anything of the material universe can be digitized and copied. No question about it. So it absolutely, I'm sure, uh, the technology doesn't exist today. Will it exist in my what remains of my lifetime? I'm not sure. Will it exist by the end of the century? Absolutely. The ability to digitize and copy everything that is Rob or everything that is Kevin or everything that is Marty and make it a, a version of that essentially come alive on another substrate, probably silicon. Okay, but is that me or do I now have a twin brother? And, you know, I've never had a twin, uh, a twin brother. I've had two brothers, but I've never had a twin brother. I don't know what it's like, but I do know that from my friends who do have twins, that other person ain't them.
Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the problem of identity, right? Like, yeah, if you upload your brain into a computer one day, will you yourself feel, you know, become that person or not? And it's a huge philosophical question. And we will debate that for a great deal of time to come. Um, in my novel, um, Red Planet Blues, which I'm actually trying to set up a TV series based on, even as we speak, uh, there it has to do with uploaded consciousness as well. And in that, there's a uh, fictional but famous um, court case where the president of the United States, uh, an assassination attempt is made against the president. The president barely survives. The nascent brain scanning technology is there. His brain is scanned and transferred into an android body. And of course, everybody on the planet is watching to see if this android instantiation of the president of the United States is in any way, shape, or form behaving differently than he did before, quote unquote, his consciousness was transferred. And the Supreme Court of the United States ultimately decides it is the same person in that case. Uh, but and that kind of that kind of court case will be in front of us as these technologies develop. And that's, you know, science fiction is is our distant early warning system, to use a Canadianism right there, um, <laughs> for these things that are coming to face us, these philosophical conundra that leave most people gobsmacked when they finally hit the headlines, are in most cases, you know, well chewed over questions in the pages of science fiction mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and in well, the better film and television science fiction too well in reality too i i just heard an interview with mark zuckerberg not that he's an expert on this but he was talking about vr virtual reality and neural interfaces and his his feeling on this is and of course take it with a grain of salt is that simply having an interface to the brain is inadequate it's our brain is so intricately connected to our body that you'd almost have to model the whole body for it to work properly and 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 i can imagine that creating such a large complexity that this would be it's that a much huge harder. question it's called the embodiment problem whether cognition and consciousness can exist without a physical instantiation and uh whether the kind of central dogma of neuroscience for the last half century, which is that consciousness and cognition is solely in the brain and maybe maybe in a part of the, the upper spinal cord, but nowhere else in the body, that it's not in your fingertips, it's not in your toes, it's not in your belly, it's not in your spleen, uh, is something that's starting to be challenged. Uh, it's a presumption that was made because it was the easiest presumption, and yet no matter how finely we carve up a human brain or analyze it with an MRI, nobody has ever found the seat of consciousness. We found the place at the back of the head here, at the occipital uh, lobe of the brain, where V1, the primary visual processing area is. We know where that is. We can point out where uh, a lot of emotional responses happen. We can point out all kinds of things, but where the sense of self is, may in fact require a body. And in fact, uh, you know, we're recording video here, but we're only doing audio for the public. You, can, you guys can see that I gesticulate a lot when I talk. How much of that gesticulation is required for the formation of the thoughts that I'm trying to get across? And how much of it is just a uh, uh, you know, uh, an unnecessary flourish, an epiphenomenon that has nothing to do with cognition or consciousness. We just don't know yet. But the project I'm about to start, uh, my next uh, project, uh, which is called Domesticus, is very much dealing with this question of whether or not a uh, scanned human brain without a body uh, can... Uh, do the same things that any of us with a body can do. And I don't mean do a Rubik's Cube, right? Or, you know, uh, uh, thread a needle. I'm not talking about mechanical manipulation. I'm talking about whether it affects the nature of cognition and emotion. You know, we talk again about uploading everything that's in your brain. Well, that's great. But uh, have you uploaded the adrenal gland? Have you uploaded the pituitary gland? Have you uploaded all those things that make my stomach rumble when I'm hungry? 
those affect, and you know, the idea uh, that an uploaded consciousness would be the same as you is an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. And I say, uh, you know, to my wife earlier today, you know, sorry, I'm hangry, right? Which is a fairly new word, but you know what it means. It means to be angry because you're hungry, right? Will an uploaded consciousness be capable of that particular benchmark of the human condition? Remains to be seen. And if you edit that out, like if you edit that out of you where you can no no longer be hangry because they've removed that part of the brain, what does that do to you and how does that change you as an individual? That's right. And, you know, so if you edit out out my testosterone or men have estrogen too, if you edit out, you know, those hormones, do you find, does it affect your your libido? Does it affect your romantic love? What is it? We just don't know. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be absolutely, uh, quite literally, mind expanding to d- be able to tackle these questions, and we will book? tackle them this century. Is it a book, yeah. Robert, that you're doing? Uh, so yes, um, uh, I'm hoping to get a similar deal with Audible that I got for um, the downloaded. Um, but Domesticus, whether they they buy it or not, will be my next novel. The overall conceit is it's about artificial intelligence um, uh, entering into the relationship with humanity that humanity has had for tens of thousands of years now with dogs, right? Dogs are domesticated wolves. And in the process of domesticating the wolf, we also changed. It was a co-domestication. There's a lot of fascinating uh, literature, scientific literature about this. And my thought is if we ever do hit the singularity, there's going to be, uh, a possibility that in fact, the advantageous move is to allow us ourselves to be quote unquote domesticated. Look at how much better a housed dog, not a feral dog, but a housed dog has it than a wolf. A wolf is an endangered species. A wolf has to fight for its own food. A wolf has to move on when it's made of poop because nobody's going to come along and pick it up after them, right? Whereas a dog never, a a homed dog, that's the phrase that's used. Uh, And by the way, are the minority of dogs on the planet. There are probably, estimates vary, but probably a billion dogs on planet Earth. Uh, Only 200 million of so of which live in homes. The rest are feral, mostly in Africa and Asia, but they're they're out there and not tame, you know. You know, and they don't uh, get the benefit of dom- of um, domestication. But uh, those that do live incredibly pampered lives with healthcare, right? Essentially, yeah. socialized medicine for dogs. If you're a home dog, yeah. uh, with all your wants and needs looked after, even luxuries like nice cushy blankets to sit on. So I'm going to explore that issue. And of course, it'll be controversial, which is what makes it worth writing about. There'll be those who say, oh, my God, I would never give up my liberty uh, to be, quote unquote, domesticated. Um, and uh, yet, you know, though that liberty being a Yang worship word in uh, Star Trek uh, or a, uh, is also an American fundamental word, but also, you know, uh, the American um Founding documents uh, promise ensuring domestic tranquility. Mm-hmm. And how many of us would actually embrace an opportunity to actually have that ever-elusive domestic tranquility? So that's what Domestic Us is about. It's uh, The title is a bit of a pun because uh, uh, as two words, domestic us, it refers to the domestication of humans, but as a single word, domesticus, that's often the species designation of a, a genus of, uh, in a binomial name of a of an animal or a plant that has been domesticated. It'll be blank domesticus, passer domesticus, the the domestic house sparrow, for instance. That's that's an interesting approach. It's it, it's how you frame it because you see that in other in other science fiction where AI is benevolent and it helps humanity in a certain way, and there's significantly more complex and smarter than us like in the culture series or in uh sue burke's series as um but i love the framing that we are actually domesticated i can see that being very off-putting to a lot of people 
It's good. It's going to be awful to some and wonderful to others. And I have the perfect, I think, metaphors and vehicles to deal with it. I've done all the research and and the, the such as I do outlining in advance. And actually, tomorrow morning, I head off uh, to a uh, writing retreat in rural Alberta. Some friends of mine and I do it every year at this time of year. And I'm off. And uh, the purpose for that, for me, is diving into writing uh, Domesticus in earnest. Uh, for anybody who's thinking of stealing my idea, it's, uh, it'll be done by Christmas. You won't, you won't be able to do a bunch on this. <laughs> and back again to our comments about Canadians, right? We're, we're not so much after freedom as we are after peace, order, and good government, right? That's we we right. like our domesticatedness. It's, it's such uh, a contrast, Ed, yeah. Marty. And Americans don't necessarily, they, of course, Americans and Canadians know all about America. Canadians know all about United States and Canada. Americans tend to only know about the United States. Um, So everybody, every Canadian and American knows that the fundamental documents that founded the United States promise life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What only Canadians know is that our founding document, the British North America Act, promises peace, order, and good government. Very different. Very different national dreams. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it's debatable on either side of the border, whether any of us got the things we were promised, <laughs> but they are very, very significantly different. Well, yeah. you know, Robert, I actually had a t-shirt custom made that says peace, order and good government. Cause I couldn't find one and I wanted it. I, I, I believe in it. All the, all of our, I believe in it too. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Canada's role on the world stage is as a peacekeeper, which is a wonderful thing to be. We have, uh, we do mostly have order. I mean, there've been the horrible things. We're talking just days after the, the mass stabbing in Saskatchewan. And of course there have been some civil unrest in this country, but compared to other countries, minimal amount of it. We have a fairly ordered society, by which I don't mean hierarchical. Uh, we have, uh, we don't have a really class-based society, but it's got order in it. And good government, for better or for worse, uh, most of the time, whether no matter which party is in power, pro- pro- uh, provincially or federally. Uh, this is a pretty well-administered country. It's a rich, prosperous country uh, that has, uh, on the World Happiness Index, well ahead of the United States, on longevity ahead of the United States. You know, uh, it's a great success story, and Canadians, you know, should be justifiably proud of that. Before we leave the topic of simulations, uh, or sorry, not simulations, but of uh, uploading consciousness. Uh, one of my favorite stories of all time is um, iterations, where you take this notion of of uploaded consciousness to the 123rd degree, I believe, um, where you talk about Frank Tipler's uh, version of this, where it's not just that we're talking about uploading a particular actual human being's consciousness, but he imagines that at some point, perhaps at the end of the universe, uh, you know, computing power is strong enough that not only could you, you know, simulate a human, but you could simulate all possible humans. And that just blew my mind. That is a big, crazy idea uh, that, you know, not you could simulate every possible human. And then on top of that, every possible thought that that particular instantiation of that human could possibly have. And so that raises yet another huge philosophical sort of query right which is not just if if you upload me am i still me but if you simulate some version of me that happens to be exactly accurate is that me or is you know can we you know do those those simulated people com- exist in any real way right and and so that that is an amazing story that you you saw i mean that story you sort of you solved the problem of um the uh, Fermi paradox. Fermi paradox. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, the Fermi paradox. Using that, that the reason that we don't see, you know, other aliens is that we're actually a simulation. That's evidence that we are a simulation because we should be seeing all these aliens. But in fact, computationally, you know, the limit is simulating one planet of all possible people and all possible right, right people. Could and and you have. mentioned Tipler, who of course yes. is a physicist and an and an out there physicist. I mean, all of his oh, that's out there. Fairly yeah. recent <laughs> books are are pretty out there. Um, 
but they're fascinating ideas to play with. Uh, you know, he may or may not be right that eventually the computing power will exist to simulate, as you say, all possible combinations of, of DNA that could be reasonably called a human being and every possible configuration of neural states and therefore memories and thoughts and so forth that could possibly arise in a human-sized brain. Um, that begs the question of whether that has already happened, right? Earth is 4 billion years old. Uh, the universe, as everybody who watches the Big Bang Theory knows, is 14 billion years old, much older than Earth. Has some other civilization come and reached that level of technology well before us? And are we a simulation that they have created? The simulation hypothesis, which existed in science fiction long, long, long before Nick um, Bostrom, a, a British uh, mathematician, tried to lay claim to it as his own. <laughs> so are we in, in a simulation then, Robert? So I had cause to take an Uber somewhere recently, and the Uber driver went a different route to the same place I'd gone many times than I had ever gone. Uh, and I saw a part of the city of Toronto that I'd never seen before. Now, the argument that we don't live in a simulation is that any simulation is going to be very processor intensive for the computer. If it's going to have anything like the resolution where you don't see the pixels as you do, you know, in, a, in a old style video games, right? Uh, and so any simulation will likely be parsimonious in what it has to simulate. So why on earth or in the simulation would the simulation choose out of the blue to have to simulate hundreds and hundreds of buildings and people and blades of grass and their dogs and all the things that I, and the litter and the grass, all the things that I saw simply because the Uber driver took a left where I would have taken a right. That's the argument, one of the big arguments against us being in a simulation. Um, whether we are or not, who really knows, right? Who really knows? Um, but my gut feeling is, as Mr. Spock famously said, I'm convinced that I am substantial. I do exist. I'm not just pixels and I'm not just ones and zeros. Um, it's same argument, of course, is used about free will, where there's a lot of good physics thinking and some good cognitive neuroscience thinking to say we have no free will whatsoever. But I choose, and I understand it's a choice, uh, to act as though I have freedom of choice and as though I live in what some would call base reality, the reality in, un, in which at some future point, very sophisticated simulations might be made within that reality. So yeah, I think this is real. Um, and if I'm wrong, I'll never know. Blissfully ignorant. Unless, of course, like the Truman Show. I love the movie, the Truman yeah. Show. And as you may remember, and I knew I was watching an intelligent film because as you may remember, Jim Carrey walks out on a beautiful day uh, at the beginning of the film and something is falling from way up in the sky. And he just watches it as it falls down and it hits the ground and he goes over and looks at it. And it's a spotlight that somebody has labeled in masking tape as Alpha Canis Majoris. And then I think oh. they say in brackets, Sirius, the brightest star other than our sun in the night sky. And it's like, A, somebody knew what they were doing with Alpha Canis Majoris and, and putting that on the uh, masking tape. Somebody, the writer, uh, knew what they were doing with that. I knew I was going to be in for an intelligent film. But unless there's a glitch in the matrix, uh, we won't be able to say, oh, I guess this isn't real. That said, there are events of the last few years in politics uh, on the global scale, I won't name names here, where people have said, oh my God, this has to be made up. This can't be real. This couldn't have possibly really happened. That explains it. It's a glitch in the matrix. I didn't know what was going on. So it's, the yeah. simulation's falling apart. 
That's right. Absolutely. And then there's always the question that, you know, and it go, it's a very eschatological question. We go back, if you're a religious person and you argue God created the universe, that's an interesting argument. Is God still alive? That's a fundamental question. If God is still alive, okay, I, free will requires him to let us have the war that's going on between Russia and uh, Ukraine, or really the invasion of Ukraine by a, a militant, violent Russia uh, at the moment. Free will, you know, uh, you guys got to sort that one out for yourselves. But Hurricane Katrina was not free will. Earthquakes and floods, except those of most recent vintage that might arguably be related to, say, fracking or, say, climate change. But throughout history, natural disasters were either random processes or the work of a thug. So God is either dead, never existed, or if he does exist, as I think it was H.L. Mencken said, he's a vicious thug. <laughs> well, that is a great segue to talking about your book, Calculating God, uh, which which I thought was one of the most ballsy and interesting uh, science fiction books I've ever read, especially for a hard sci-fi author, Agreed. where you lay out the case essentially for God, or at least you 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 know put together a lot of interesting arguments uh, that that for intelligent design in a sense. Um, Without being an intelligent designist or something, right? Like, I, I you know, I, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was tongue in cheek. I don't know if you were. It's not tongue in cheek. It, it was a, you know, and I thank you for the kind words, Marty. Thank you very much. But it very much was a response. Uh, I've been, a, I, I'm an atheist. I've been an atheist since childhood uh, because I'm an empiricist. Show me the evidence. Show me the evidence that, you know, the biblical account, which as a child was the only one I was familiar with. Now, as an adult, I've become familiar with the Talmud, the Quran, and other uh, texts. Uh, I spent a lot of time with the Bhagavad Gita uh, when I was writing uh, the Oppenheimer Alternative because it was uh, very dear to J. Robert Oppenheimer, that particular text. But um, I've, I, I'm an atheist, but I like to think of myself as a kind atheist. Mm. And somebody posted on Facebook, it was a meme, but it was a, a church sign, church, where you know you have those rearrangeable letters, right? And this is what the pastor or the, the clergy person had put up. God prefers kind atheists to hateful Christians. Mm. Yeah, it's very true. God probably mm. does. Um, but what I found in the rhetoric in the mid to late 90s, I wrote uh, Calculating God starting in 1998, came out in 2000, uh, was that the rhetoric from the dogmatic religious right had become indistinguishable, or I should say the other way around, but the rhetoric from the dogmatic hard atheist left, they had both become indistinguishable. Now, for instance, Darwin famously said, Charles Darwin uh, said, if somebody could show that there is a sophisticated process in biology that could not have come about by gradual step-by-step -step changes, then my theory would be found wanting. Now, that's what you should do, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the key... Falsifiability, right? The, that's right. The key to the scientific method is falsifiability. And if you don't have criteria by which your theory can be falsified, then it's not a theory. It is a religion. So Darwin put this out there. And for an awfully long time, things were thrown up and science very nicely met the challenge. Well, a guy named uh, Michael J. Behe, B-A-H-E, B-E-H-E, wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box, The Biochemical Challenge to Evolution, where he attempted to rise to that. And, had, and he is a biochemist and, uh, you know, well-trained at a, at a traditional university. And he had a number of arguments for things, including the mechanism of the flagella, which is the propeller of uh, lots of different uh, unicellular life forms, and also, for that matter, the sperm in a human being. Um, and he made an argument that this is irreducibly complex, that you can't find step-by-step -step things that would have led to it. It had to come and be de novo, out of nothing. 
And now there are counter arguments against that, which is fine. That's how the debate should be. But as soon as he put that forward and the term intelligent design is what he applied it, so you can see, he said, he said, you could see the signs that there was an intelligent designer, right? The far left hard atheist community wouldn't let him use his words intelligent design without making them adjectives and tacking on a noun afterwards, creationism intelligent design creationism and they conflated intelligent design with biblical young earth creationism which was demonstrably false there are all kinds of ways you can falsify the the notion that the earth is only 6000 years old radioactive decay testing and dating and so forth being one of the simplest but there are many 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 ways to do it um that's a falsifiable premise and instead of engaging with Behe's arguments as an open-minded, scientifically-oriented rationalist community should have, they decided to play semantic games and say, oh, yeah, it's just creationism in a new guise. And they went after it on that basis. And I thought, no, 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 no. You are being dogmatic. You're being unfair. Darwin set up the challenge, and here's a guy saying, okay, here's my, my attempt to answer Darwin's challenge. And instead of engaging and saying, well, here's why I think you haven't actually answered it properly, or here's a model that I can put forward that says the flagellum or the clotting sequence of blood, another example that uh, he suggested, uh, can could have arisen out of simpler processes along the way. Uh, instead of playing fair, the dogma became the same. So I thought, you know, at that time, Stephen Jay Gould and uh, and uh, Carl Sagan were the famous faces of atheism. Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens rose to prominence a little bit more later afterwards. They all had one thing in common. Two of those are, three of those are dead now, I guess. Uh, and that was an incredible degree of arrogance. And I thought... Uh, what would happen if you had a scientist who was every bit as rational and as committed to the theory of evolution uh, as uh, Gould, Stephen Jay Gould, who was himself a paleontologist, but wasn't as arrogant, was facing the end of his life? And then I thought, what if an alien showed up and instead of saying what most science fiction would say, oh, you silly humans with your creation myths and your belief in a higher power and all of that. If he said, actually, all of the research we've done with our even more sophisticated science than yours points to an intelligent design in the universe and somebody still currently stacking the deck and rolling loaded dice for the way things turn out. And just put those two, the alien creationist and the human evolutionist, in a respectful, affectionate, they become great friends by the end of the book, dialogue, which is what I think should have happened in the real world when Behe and others rose from a scientific point of view to challenge, as science should be challenged, uh, the, the theory put forward by Charles Darwin. Amazing, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of common ground that's valuable to both sides to explore exactly there, because I, too, am somewhat, I guess I'm an agnostic, maybe an atheist, maybe, but I'm a, an imminent theist, let's say, you know, I kind of just love the universe and like any scientists, and I revere the universe, right? I revere the laws of physics that we find and the laws of biology as we find it. And, you know, that is a religious sort of i don't know uh attitude let's say right the reverence and gratitude that's really what religion's for whether or not there's a big man in the sky like i you know it doesn't really matter uh and so i think there's a lot of room to for scientists to find let's just call it spirituality or or you know some sense of meaning uh but and i have a number of scientist friends obviously a large number who are atheists but also a number who are devout. My first novel that I wrote, it came out as my fourth, was End of an Era. And I was lucky enough to consult with, the, it's a time travel novel about dinosaurs, consult with the great, at that time, leading Canadian dinosaurian paleontologist since passed away. 
name was Dale A. Russell at the National Museum of Natural History in Ottawa. And Dale was a devout Roman Catholic and had no difficulty whatsoever studying dinosaurs and believing fervently in their ancient, uh, you know, millions of years ago, 225 million years ago, the dawn of the Triassic, 185 million years ago, the first dinosaur, right? No trouble believing in that at all. I'm also friends with Brother Guy Consumayo, who is the now the Vatican astronomer. When I first became friends with him, he was working his way up the Vatican ladder. But, you know, he's a, obviously a devout, he's a Jesuit, he's a Jesuit brother, obviously a devout Jesuit Roman Catholic who is thoroughly versed in modern astronomy and cosmology and fully understands that the universe is 14 billion years old. And it is not inherently impossible for a scientist to be a religious person. I am not a religious person, but I liken it uh, to uh, one of my novels, Mind Scan, the main character is colorblind. And uh, one of my best friends, in fact, the organizer of the writing retreat I'm off to tomorrow is colorblind. All three of my male cousins are colorblind. Never once have those people in my life who are colorblind said to me when I said, you know, I can see the difference between red and green. I come on, you're full of it. You're just pulling my leg. You're delusional. There's no difference. They're the same color, which is the most common colorblindness. The uh, uh, note who uh, conflates red and green into a single, a single color. Um, they've never said that to me. How arrogant would it be of me to say to brother guy, or to Dale Russell before he passed away, that they were benighted fools for perceiving something in the universe that I'm not wired to perceive. I see full color just fine, uh, but there may be ways or things that people are perceiving, intelligent, bright people. I have several friends who are active clergy. Michael Corrin is a friend of mine. He's an Anglican minister. Paul Fader is a friend of mine. He used to teach my books at York University in Toronto before health made him uh, retire to basically. But he had, he's also a United Church minister. Um, you mentioned, you know, at the outset uh, with the introduction, Kevin, that I have the Order of Canada, which I'm very, very proud of. But one of the things I'm most proud of is <clears throat> my second <laughs> honorary doctorate. My second honorary doctorate is from the University of Winnipeg. Now, an honorary doctorate has to be approved by the University Senate and the, the president and the deans and so forth. But it has to also be sponsored through that process by faculty members. My honorary doctorate from the University of Winnipeg was jointly sponsored by the Dean of Science and the, at that point, emeritus, that is retired but retaining uh, some posts, emeritus dean of theology mm -hmm. at the University of Winnipeg, because they both recognized that my work had politely and constructively engaged with the religion science interface, which many people try to portray as an irreconcilable conflict. As uh, Stephen Jay Gould uh, dismissed them as non-overlapping magisteria, a very grandiose phrase to say that they just have nothing in common. And uh, you mentioned this, Marty. They're both ways of comprehending, of believing, of and great science, great mathematics, and beautiful works of art and wonderful pieces of music and looking up at the night sky, whether you look up at it and can name the constellations and find the brightest stars and point them out, or whether it's just a panoply of lights that have no particular, uh, you, you don't know how far away any of them are or anything about how they evolve and ultimately die. Either way, it makes a feeling, a numinous feeling in your consciousness that is very much a significant part of the human condition and should not be decried or denigrated when it occurs in a human being for any reason. I think you really uh, put your finger on it there with that debate with Michael Behe that, uh, you know, the, the trouble seems to be in, in the ownership of the world word intelligence. You know, I yeah. have no problem seeing nature as intelligent i mean biology solves problems that's what it does it's a problem solving machine it, it, what else 
is intelligence but that there is an inherent intelligence and then but you know suddenly there's this you know christian version of like that oh if you use the word intelligence you're talking about god somebody else somebody dissociated from nature well no like nature is intelligent uh and and we should explore that and understand it and and uh, revere it We've talked a lot about the fact that my books touch a great deal on uploaded consciousness, but another theme I write about all the time is artificial intelligence. And the reality is we don't have a good definition of right. intelligence, whether it's artificial or natural. And so, you know, the goalposts keep moving. I mean, right. it used to be, right, that um, playing chess was a pinnacle of human intelligence that no machine could ever match and then of course gary kasparov was defeated uh and you know okay well a different kind of intelligence playing go oh well alpha go defeated us well what about something that plays on puns and and you know subtle clues like jeopardy well deep blue defeated us so we keep saying you know well whatever we mean by intelligence isn't that thing that we thought it was it's something else and until we have a good definition of what intelligence is, arguing whether or not the universe has an intelligent designer or whether or not a computer is intelligent uh, is, is pointless. It's a word that has no meaning. Hmm. Well, I mean, an, an interesting thing that came out of that book for me, Calculating God, um, is I've, I've always been, uh, 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 you know, I haven't explicitly believed in god uh if you had asked me what the probability was of of whether god exists or not i'd probably say it's 99 sure that god doesn't exist but then i if you had asked me what do you think the probability is that we live in a simulation you know i've i've kind of read through some of uh nick bostrom's stuff and and i i have this sense that well maybe there's a possibility we live in a simulation maybe it's 30 percent that we live in a simulation even though i think he says it's something like 50. um and elon musk says it's an almost a certainty right right so i mean all the, and that's just complete speculation but there's an interesting probabilistic argument around it however there would be a creator for that simulation yes yeah, so who would be in essence our god even yeah. if it is the far far future equivalent of a high school student doing a project in basic cosmology by creating a universe, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that implies so, yeah. that if you believe in a simulation, that there's a 30% chance that there is an intelligent designer. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, and you were mentioning, you know, uh, you're 99% sure there isn't a God, but there's a 1% chance that there is a God. This comes back to basically Pascal's wager, right? Pascal, you know, said, well, I choose to believe in God because if I'm wrong, no harm, no foul. I've lost nothing. If I'm right, I get rewarded. But if I don't believe in God, and in this sort of fundamentals Christian version of, of religion, if I don't believe in God and then I'm not saved, then I have eternal damnation awaiting for me. So even if it's only a 1% chance, that I might get eternal damnation. Better, you know, it's a good wager to say, okay, I'll say, ah, there is a God, just because the reward is so much greater than the cost. And it's the same reason anybody buys a lottery ticket. Mm -hmm. You know, both of my parents were statisticians. They knew full well that state-run lotteries are, as it's famously said, attacks on idiots. They, it's <laughs> ridiculous, right? The chances of getting any benefit back are so minuscule that it's ridiculous to play them. And yet I play them and many other people of intelligence play them because the cost is so tiny compared to the outsized benefit. And that's what Pascal said, the cost of saying God exists is so tiny compared to the outsized benefit of going to heaven or avoiding going to hell mm -hmm. that it's worth that wager. Yeah. And there's a generalization of that too. I mean, I, I think it's not likely that I think if God exists, it's not likely he cares whether I believe in him. That's sort of my, my take. And so, I'm, so, I'm you know, so you that, that that's kind of convolved in this idea that God's going to punish you or reward you. But there is an argument to be made that living a life as if there is a God who's watching you uh, and judging you um, makes you live your life differently, right? And possibly better uh, than if you don't. And so there is possibly a benefit, irrespective of whether there's punishment involved or, or reward. Absolutely. The famous experiment in that area 
was actually done in the UK, but it could have been done anywhere. There, uh, in a, it, it, and it was an office where they had a kitty that you put in every time you take a cup of coffee to go towards the buying of the coffee for the office. And what the person who was in charge of the kitty found was that far more cups of coffee were being drunk than the, you know, whatever the small, uh, let's call it a one euro coin you had to put in uh, that was supposed to go in. Uh, well, it wouldn't be a euro in the UK anymore, but <laughs> that was supposed to go in there. Uh, and he put up a picture, just a picture of human eyes huh. above the coffee urn. All that suggested, and obviously everybody could see it was paper stuck up with scotch tape, but it suggested this notion that your behavior is being watched. And suddenly everybody was paying for their cups of coffee. So yeah, there's, you know, we're at one of the fundamental philosophical dichotomies of our present day uh, is uh, that we enormously apparently value privacy. And indeed, I'm on the board of directors of a company called Purism. Our website is P-U-R-I.S-M. And we make privacy focused laptop computers and cell phones. I'm, I'm a member of the corporate board of directors. Uh, so I'm certainly not averse to the notion of privacy. But the reality is that people who are observed do behave differently than people who aren't. And there is some thinking in the origin. If you look back at why did religions come into existence? Well, before we had closed circuit television cameras and before we had, uh, you know, uh, social media tracking everything we did and so forth, telling people that they were being observed by God, by this invisible force, uh, was supposed to have a modifying effect on the otherwise rapacious behavior that human beings in that conception of human nature default to. Mm -hmm. So here's another version of God for you. Imagine uh, if there could exist a technology that could be invented by any alien civilization anytime in the entire future history of the universe that is able to dial in and watch uh, history happen, watch places, uh, watch, you know, people. And maybe this alien civilization a million years from now discovers planet Earth and they dial in and they watch us live our ridiculous lives. And this is Netflix for them, right? Like they're just they're kind of watching for interesting people and stories and they create movies, you know, entertainment for themselves by watching the real life happenings on planet Earth. Well, that means that you and I at any moment in our lives have no privacy we could be being watched, you know, by the entire integrated future history of the of the universe um, and watching what we do. And that already that's enough. Right. That's enough that you are watched to now behave different. Uh, it doesn't mean that there is an external God and a creator and all this stuff we get, you know, all wrapped up in with religion. It's just the notion that, you know, you you, you are witnessed. Right. There is witness to your being and your behavior and your life. Uh, is, I think, enough to create meaning. And I think that's a fun little kind of God to carry around with. with Absolutely. Us. You know, God is another one of these words that is so poorly defined uh, that uh, it, it muddles the discussion. Yeah. Is anything that created the reality that we currently exist in God? Well, yes, I think that's a good definition, but that God could be an alien, that God could be a super advanced computer, that God could be a, as I said a few minutes ago, far future high school student doing a project, or it could be some extraordinary being that exists outside time and space and the laws of physics. We use the same word for all those things. You said earlier on you very much doubted whether any God would care whether you worshipped you. Worship, worshiped him uh, or her. And my opinion is exactly the same. What a, how, how petty do you have to be? You know, uh, I make fun of my friends who obsess over how many social media followers they have, right? Uh, because it's all meaningless, I say to them, you know? Um, and uh, they go, oh, look at how many hits. Do you really think a superior being spends their time watching to see how many hits and likes they get? Well, that's what you're basically saying. God must be if you believe that God spends all his time wondering, now, is Rob a 
praying to me properly? Is he liking what I'm doing? Is he, you know, following me or not? I mean, come <laughs> on. It's it's the same level of BS as obsessing on what your number of Instagram or Twitter or TikTok or Facebook followers are. Yeah. Well, this is awesome. Um, what are we not asking you about, Robert? Because this has been one of my very favorite conversations I've had with any of our authors. What else? What are, what have we not asked you that we should have asked you? Well, that's a good question because you've asked great ones. Oh. Um, wow. Well, uh, I suppose we could talk a little bit about science fiction and where it as a genre is at the moment. Because I I like to point out, you said you, most of your audience before the show began, we were talking, is hardcore science fiction people. Mm -hmm. And there's a tendency for hardcore science fiction people not to realize how incredibly small science fiction as an aspect of publishing is these days. Fairly big on uh, especially cable, uh, you know, streaming television, a little bit on network television, but not much. Um, fantasy by far dominates science fiction. Uh, you know, when I started my, my early, my second novel, the one that was typeset uh, from my own word star disc uh, came out in 1992. And at that time, ACE science fiction, Penguin Random House's principal science fiction imprint, uh, Venerable did six titles a month. Five were science fiction and one was fantasy. When I did Quantum Night for them, which was my last novel that I did for uh, ACE, for Penguin Random House, uh, I guess in 2016, they did six titles a month. Five were fantasy. And one was sometimes science fiction, sometimes alternate history, which you can argue about whether or not it's science fiction. Philip K. Dick argues certainly, and fairly persuasively, I think, in in the text of the man of the high in the high castle, as a character arguing that it is in fact science fiction, uh, and uh, that sixth one could also be an extra fantasy novel thrown in there. There's very little of hard science fiction being published in English at book length anymore. Now next year, I'm lucky enough to be one of the guests of honor at the World Science Fiction Convention, which will be in Chengdu, China. And one of the reasons I'm a big name in China, I was lucky enough to win an award some years ago for being the most popular foreign author in China, foreign science fiction author in China, won their Galaxy Award for that, uh, is because I do write hard science fiction. And China is, is very much uh, a hotbed today of hard science fiction. My co-guest of honor at that Worldcon is Xixin Lu, who wrote The Three-Body Problem. And Xixin and I have been friends for a number of years now. Well, we first met in 2007. So what is that, 15 years now? Uh, before Three-Body was translated into English and became the worldwide six and won the Hugo. I've won a Hugo. Xixin's won a Hugo uh, before that. But yes, there are places in the world where hard science fiction is thriving. But there it isn't in Canada or the United States. I'm seeing friends of mine who have written, I won't name their names here, but their names you'll know, who made their start as science fiction writers and either have been squeezed right out of the genre and aren't writing at all, or have pivoted mostly to writing fantasy, although a few have pivoted to writing mystery fiction instead. So what I say to your hardcore readership of hard SF fans is find an accessible hard science fiction novel. If I want to be self-serving, I would say one of mine. I've always made an effort to no matter how complex the science is to make it readable by anybody. But there are other authors, another Canadian, Robert Charles Wilson, excellent mm -hmm. choice in that regard. Uh, my American colleague and great friend, Alan M. Steele, uh, Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E, -E -E, also a wonderful choice in that regard. There are many excellent choices. Reach out, become an evangelist, an advocate, for this field before it desiccates and dries up like one of the trisolarians in Shishin Lu's three-body problem. <laughs> well, we've talked to, uh, uh, we're, we're doing our, we're working our way through Toronto and we've talked to um, Carl Schrader um, and Corey My Doctorow. great friend Carl. I had the great privilege. I used to edit a line of books called, it wasn't my idea, but it was called Robert J. Sawyer Books 
for um, Fitzhenry and Whiteside, a, a significant Canadian publisher. Uh, and I had the great privilege of publishing Carl's short story collection mm -hmm. uh, under that imprint. A very fine author. Well, those were those were words of wisdom. That's uh, good advice for all of our sci-fi fans. Uh, listen to Robert J. Sawyer. Let's let's get hardcore sci-fi back on the map. We'd love to have you back on the show to to maybe uh, talk about God with a different science fiction author. That's always been a dream of mine. We we talked to Greg Bear a while ago. He told us he had a voice in his head for a month that was effectively God. And he's a hard science fiction author. Greg uh, and I have been friends for decades. I would love to have a dialogue with Greg. Oh, I think uh, that'd and be of course, also just a wonderful writer. But yeah, uh, be fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today, Robert Sawyer. What a fantastic conversation. We're definitely going to be talking with Rob again. We hope you enjoyed that one. Next week, Chris Gebhardt from NASA Space Flight. So that's going to be really cool. we got to talk about some rockets and some space stuff. Who doesn't want to hear more about that right now? Thank you, everyone. Until next time. <laughs>